You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. Welcome to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your other co-host, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I come to you today as a new father of two. Yay! Yay! Opa! It turns out, actually, Ben, that my son, new son, Fritz Dundas, uh, was actually quite... Um, polite in terms of being born late on a Saturday night as to not, I'm sure, in his mind, uh, interfere with the recording of this podcast. I really, guys, I was going to say being born late on a Saturday night suggests that maybe he likes to party. Well, so far, that seems to be the case. And if by partying you mean just sucking on boobs all that, the time. That is and I know exactly that, what I mean. I know that that fits your personal definition of partying. So yeah, pretty much twenty four s seven with the partying for uh, for the little guy so far. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, see, my experience was I can't tell if it's that the second baby is just for us personality wise easier than the first our first daughter was, uh, or if it's just that like we give less of a shit the second time around. We were just kind of like, all right, let's let's do this. Everybody just come in here. Like it doesn't seem like quite as huge a lifestyle switch a life as a lifestyle completely being turned upside down as it is the first time how how is that going yeah i mean it's there's a little bit old of old hat to it you've done this this is not your first rodeo you've done this once second time around you kind of know what to expect uh i did not for whatever reason have the experience where you're you're in the hospital for the first night and you're trying to sleep in the crappy hospital room on the yeah. crappy hospital bed slash couch thing that they give the father while the mother is laid up in like a, a cyborg bed yes uh I did not have the experience where every noise the child makes you assume that that was the death rattle of them dying, which I totally did with my daughter when she was born. Like, you just lie there because they seem so small. They seem, frankly, too small to live. And so you're lying there and every noise you're like, oh, she's dead. That's well, it for her. She's she's a goner. And now, I mean, even if it does go that way, you got a spare. So an extra one. Yeah. yeah. Stakes in terms of survival, way lower now. That's right. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that I have already learned. There are inherent dangers in changing a male child's uh, diaper that do not exist you know, with a female child. I, it, I had thought about that recently, especially because, you know, yesterday being Father's Day and you see everybody, especially it seemed like there's a lot of like grown women posting these pictures of their dads from like the 70s and 80s and being like, LOL, uh, look at, you know, my dad and what a, what a geek he was in his short shorts and his bushy mustache. Um, and as the father of two daughters... A part of me just wants to tell them, you know that man cleaned poop out of your vagina. Maybe give a him lot. a break. Every a day. lot. He did Every it day. for years. Maybe give him a break on the shorts. Well, you know what I got for Father's Day from my son? Peed on. Because that is the inherent <laughs> danger that uh, does not exist when changing a girl's diaper. And so far, I got to say, this guy can shoot urine uh, all the way across a hospital room. You, you like feel a little proud of that? 10, 12 feet at least. Makes your heart glad to see that? Like a, 10 times the own length of his body. <laughs> well, that's a good start in life. 
Uh, we got good, we got good MMA stuff to talk about though this week, Ben. Three rounds as usual in the co-main event podcast in round number one on Friday at Bellator 138. 51 year old Ken Shamrock set a new record for almost winning a fight and then immediately losing it. A record previously held by Daniel Veichel. And in round number two, Oh, Champy, you nasty. And in round number three, okay, I admit it, you could put the soldier of dog in a fight with any current middleweight on the UFC roster and hashtag would watch. Would watch. Now, don't abuse that privilege, UFC matchmakers. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff for right now, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Now, we're recording this episode at your house. That's right. Ben, because Highly at, unusual. At my house, there is a tiny peanut-sized child uh, trying to suck on boobs. So uh, we have a different setup. My computer is much lower than usual, which I can only imagine portends poor things for my sight-reading ability. Let's see how that goes. I think we're off to a good start. First question this week comes to us from Johnny Law. He writes, what's your evaluation of Scott Coker's Bellator so far? For me, not going to lie, would watch in all caps. Uh, super nutty matchmaking, Tito versus McGeary, why not? Some interesting talent emerging as well as young, exciting fighters. And more importantly, Coker knows how to promote and build them. Bjorn Rebney had a tournament, but Scott Coker has a mini arch, and people kind of wondering what he's going to do next. <laughs> there are some haters, but seriously, I can't think of a time Bellator had any buzz at all beyond being the place Eddie Alvarez wanted to escape from. Please, for the love of God, discuss. Uh, so yeah, we record this on uh, Monday, the couple days after Bellator 138 on Saturday night or Friday night, obviously headlined by Ken Shamrock against Kimbo Slice. But um, you had some other uh, interesting fights as well on the card. We talked about how Bellator is in kind of a tough position last week on the show, uh, kind of because nobody actually wants to watch their real fighters which kind of puts them in a weird position. They're, they're, you know, the actual athletes that they have at this point are not draws. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Scott Coker has opted for what is probably the right choice and maybe the only choice facing Bellator right now, and that is to have, you know, you put a couple of guys who have uh, quality name recognition at the top of the card, even if they're not at this point in their MMA careers the greatest, most competitive athletes, and then you kind of hope that the, the people come in the door to see the bearded lady and while they're there, they buy a soda pop and a, and a ball of caramel corn. And in this case, the caramel <laughs> corn is Michael Chandler, and the soda pop is is uh, Patricio Friere. Wow, that's just a tortured metaphor, but and, I like it. And, you know, it kind of, it seemed to me like at Bellator 138, it went about as well as you possibly could have imagined it for Bellator. Well, and even the announcement that they made for the event in September, right, where they're, like what they're doing with the good talent that they have, like the four-man, one-night tournament at light heavyweight hashtag would watch absolutely Chad. hashtag would watch well, and that's such a that's a good example i think of like the scott coker skills as a promoter coming out because you got these guys you got a few interesting light heavyweights none of them can really claim to be best in the world right now um and you, you got some interesting fights that you can make there but not the kind of stuff that's going to get you huge ratings numbers if you're bellator you're probably just going to keep drawing more or less the same crowd you do something interesting like that with a four-man, you know, one-night tournament. And, of course, you can make all the usual objections to a one-night tournament that, you know, like we used to see in the Pride days. Those fights at the end are usually not that great. Um, but it is like 
emotionally compelling. It's something that uh, you don't see very often. It's one of those things that the UFC has kind of ruled out doing. And so why not, if you're Bellator, go ahead and seize that like open ground. And I think it's, you know, Johnny Law here makes a good point about like, isn't this such an image revival for Scott Coker? Because when last yeah. we saw him, he was the ineffectual, like, you know, paper leader of strike force after it had been bought out by the UFC and was in this position where he'd show up to these press conferences, couldn't really tell you anything because he wasn't in a position to make a whole bunch of decisions. We'd make fun of how his answers would always be, you know, you'd ask him something, you'd ask him about a controversial finish. Uh, couldn't tell you, didn't see it, missed that part. You'd ask him, when are you guys going to do something on this? Oh, we'll tell you in a week, 10 days. You know, we became like this kind of joke among the media people. And now you see the way he's turning things around at Bellator and you're like, okay, you're really getting to see what what he can actually do because you can contrast it so quickly with like the very recent reign of Bjorn Rebney. Already Scott Coker is off to a much better start. Yeah. If, I mean, honestly, it's really kind of shrewd all the way around because I think we should point out that the job that Scott Coker has with Bellator has a much higher degree of difficulty in yes. a lot of ways than the old job he had at strike force before the ufc bought it back in those days you know there was a pretty healthy free agent market out there for strike force to go out and procure a lot of really high level talent and in fact now that all those people are in the ufc you see daniel cormier a former strike force fighter who's now sort of the light heavyweight champion you have uh, ronda rousey who is a strike force fighter uh fabricio verdun was a strike force Luke fighter. rockhold yep, jacare souza lots of strike force nick diaz lots of strike force fighters coming out uh, and doing good things in the UFC. Now, the UFC has expanded to such a point, they have 500, 600, 700, 900, 1100 fighters under contract, whatever it is, I think it's like 500. Uh, but there's just so much less talent available that Bjorn Rebney, he's kind of got to make do with a roster that is essentially the French fries at the bottom of a fast food bag, right? Like I love those French fries. The, that they try to make it seem like you got a good deal at McDonald's or whatever by just pouring a bunch of fries on top of the food and then you eat it all and it turns out there's still a, a couple handfuls of fries left in the bottom of the bag. That's that's basically Bellator's roster. Highlight of my day. At this point. And so I think what they've done is kind of shrewd. Obviously, we're going to talk a bunch more about Shamrock versus Slice during round one. Uh, but, you know, they, they put together some squash matches for Michael Chandler and uh, uh, Daniel Strauss and Bobby Lashley on the undercard of this Bellator 138. And then you got Patricio Pitbull who comes out uh, and and finishes with one of the most surprising and like highlight reel knockouts come from behind knockouts that we've seen in a really long time. So uh, kind of full speed ahead for Bellator at this point. And, and it's not as though like they're knocking on the door. It's not like the, the right. UFC is looking over its shoulders because it can hear footsteps. But they got some good things going. And the one night four man light heavyweight tournament is interesting. Uh, it could well turn out that it, it serves as a reminder why we don't do those anymore. Uh, because then you get, you know, you get, uh, Phil Davis and Muhammad Lawal both get injured in their fights and all of a sudden you got Keith Hackney and, and, uh, uh, Linton Vassal in the, in the final. And then you're like, okay, well, this is how these things go. Yeah. Uh, but, and then you got Tito Ortiz against Liam McGeary, which is, uh, kind of a no lose situation for Bellator because I think if you have to forecast it, Liam McGeary probably wears Tito Ortiz around like a hat yeah. in that fight, uh, which gets Liam McGeary over in some sense of the word. And if Tito Ortiz should mess around and win, 
well, hell, man, then Tito Ortiz is your light heavyweight champion. Could do a lot worse if you're Bellator. Well, and they got going to throw some kickboxing matches on there, too. Like, uh, reminds me, what was that old movie that wasn't uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper in an old movie where it was about these people who had had the genius promotional idea to combine pro wrestling with rock and roll? at the same show and oh, it was I'm... like the plot was basically that it was a huge breakout hit and everybody was like oh man rock and wrestling this is genius <laughs> is this the movie where he says all i i came to kick ass and chew bubble gum that's and I'm... they live okay that's a different movie different movie. so i've that's my extent of the roddy roddy piper imdb page in my own brain i don't know maybe there's another one there. i'm sure we'll get some emails about it uh next question this week comes to us from michael persico he writes the topic of fighter pay seems to come up on a daily basis now i don't think i can visit any MMA website or listen to an MMA podcast without the topic popping up. And uh, ironically, here he's guaranteed that it will pop up on this right. podcast by writing this email. Well, I know this won't happen, but what if the UFC actually opened its books to the MMA journalists? Uh, and upon seeing the books, the journalists found out that the UFC was doing a 50-50 or something really close to that split uh, that other sports leagues do. How would this change the coverage of that topic by the members of the MMA media? Uh, drastically? It would end the discussion, yes. frankly. Yeah. So discussion would be over at that point. Yeah, no, I mean, if they were to open the books and like convincingly show us that half the revenues were going out the door to fighters, uh, I mean, not only would we have to tip our cap and kind of close that discussion, we'd also maybe even owe them an apology. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because, but I mean, I, I think there's about as much chance that they are actually giving 50% of the revenues to fighters as there is of Zufa opening the books to us. Which is zero. Uh, and here's the thing about that, Michael Persico and, and Persico at all Persico, like Serpico, like that's, Serpico. Yeah. That's probably the pronunciation. That's awesome. That's an awesome name. Uh, if they do have a 50 50 split with fighters, they are so unbelievably stupid for not telling us that yes. years ago that it is impossible that that situation exists. It's <laughs> a good point. Because yeah, you would have brought because they because we've been like hearing about it, you know, just like uh, Michael Persico or Persico, whichever one you prefer, is is bringing up here. It does seem like that conversation has been going on for a while now. You're right. If they could say like, "Hey, we give half the money to the fighters, and we can prove it." God damn, they would have said it by now. And if, frankly, if they released that at this point, we would not believe them. I think there would be some of that. It would be difficult we, to get we would us have to believe to, that. We would have to somehow independently check those numbers uh, because it would be hard to believe that they kept that a secret for so long. I, like a couple years ago, uh, Ian Kidd, who I believe now writes for Bloody Elbow, but he wrote uh, uh, what was admittedly fairly speculative, but it was like kind of a, a – a breakdown of what we believe the Zufa LLC economic picture is. And since we know so little about it, like uh, he had to kind of, you know, hazard a few guesses in there, educated guesses, I would say, but, and this, this, the likely split that he came up with, I think it was pretty shocking. I think it was like 97 to seven, like that they were keeping 97% of the earnings and 7% was going to the athletes. And obviously we can't, but that's more than a hundred percent. Oh, I, I'm sorry. 93 and seven is okay. what I meant to say. Uh, and that is, uh, that actually would be quite shocking. Yeah. Cause they would be, they would have invented a new economic model there. Uh, and, and obviously we have no idea if that's close to accurate or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like 85 and 15 or 75, 25, something like that. Uh, but if you're going to keep your financial information as secretly guarded as, as Zufa does in a professional sport, 
we're going to assume that it's pretty bad. Well, like, that's just, that's the picture you paint. And wasn't Scott Coker just saying, I can't remember where he was saying that. I think maybe he did an interview with Luke Thomas or something where he was talking about the pay that they had, like, how they'd tried to balance that in Strike Force and that he was going, shooting for something like 70 30 or 60 40, like a split more in line with what uh, Major League Sports do. And he was talking about how his, his co owners, uh, also own the San Jose Sharks, so they were used to that kind of model uh, in in pro sports, and so that they aimed for something close to that with Strike Force. And then you think about how when a lot of those Strike Force guys came over, even Dana White had said publicly that some of them had contracts that were paying them way too much, uh, paying them way more than than they were worth. And so it's like, yeah, if you're telling me that Strike Force was trying to go for a more equitable split, and then when the UFC got a look at what those numbers looked like when they had to start paying the salaries, and they thought, "Whoa, hold on, some of these guys are over overpriced here," that would just kind of further lead us to believe that the split is nowhere near fifty fifty. Next question this week comes to us from David Tate. He writes, "I saw Chad's tweet on Friday night about Bobby Lashley, and I couldn't agree more." Well, thank you, David Tate. What was your What was your tweet? The tweet, in case you don't follow me on Twitter at Chad Dennis, and if you don't, I think I blocked you. What the hell's wrong with you? The tweet this after the Bobby Lashley fight where he beat up well, who was it, Dan Charles? Um, I just wrote Bobby Lashley, unbelievable Adonis, nice guy, good at interviews. Now thirteen and two, six wins in a row. Yet there's still something totally missing. Uh, that was the tweet, and now David Tate writes in response to that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Guy is a behemoth with a reasonably good mic skills and now is on a roll in the shallowest of the shallow heavyweight division. Seems like he should be a big deal. Why don't I give a shit? Please discuss. Okay. I agree with – you're right that like Bobby Lashley, every time I've talked to him, every time you, you hear him talk and, and you see him, you're just like, okay, this seems like this dude should be right up our alley in MMA. Like looks good getting off the bus as you like to say. Uh, can do an interview, smart guy, like thoughtful guy. Um, I think part of the problem is, as you've liked to say about some people, too motherfucking friendly. Uh, that could be part of the problem because if you're going to want to get up there and sell us on the, like, I'm the big, huge, scary looking dude who smashes people, you, you probably don't want to be too nice uh, in do- going for that angle. But also I think some of it is like when you watch him fight, you're just like, I feel like it's like seeing like somebody else like play a video game and you're like, just give me the controller. Just let me do it. And you, you, you see him against some of these people and you're like, why aren't you just absolutely smashing this guy? Why are you just like steadily beating him? It seems like maybe it's just the look of him, the man. It seems like he ought to be better than he is. And it's not like he's like losing fights. It's not like he's a bad fighter or anything, but it seems like he, like especially in this fight, he should absolutely wreck that guy. And instead, he just kind of like took a while and kind of drew it out and wore him down uh, and, and eventually got it stopped. I think maybe that's part of it is that it feels like a little bit of that that pop is missing. Yeah, he. I mean, he's not the most exciting guy. He's still, even in this the fight the last weekend with Dan Charles at, at Bellator, he still comes off as fairly one-dimensional. Like he wants to get you down. He doesn't want to mess around with the stand-up game. Uh, and then he's not that dynamic on the ground in terms, in terms of stopping people that, that like this second round TKO that he had over Dan Charles, uh, it was kind of like a mercy stoppage sort of, or like, we've seen enough kind of a stoppage. Yeah. Like, like maybe I, I didn't see the full replay, but it seemed like maybe Dan Charles even tapped out or something. It was just kind of like a, uh, 
well, we know where this is going. Right. We've been beating on this guy for a while, kind of a stoppage. It wasn't like a highlight. Yeah, we have to save this man. Right. It was just like, we get it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that, the, the, our perception of him as kind of a one dimensional wrestler who's more of a grinder than, than a guy who's going to stop anybody in a dynamic way hurts him. I think that our perception of his, uh, opponents hurts him. He hasn't really fought a lot of top guys. And in fact, his two career losses kind of came in the biggest spots for him because Strike Force, uh, back in those days was kind of trying to build him up and he'd beat Bob Sapp and he'd beat Wes Sims and Jason Guida. And then Strike Force tried to throw him out there against Chad Griggs and what would have been like he kind of his highest profile fight. And he ended up, ended up losing that. Uh, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, by TKO too, not like a, not like a decision or anything like that, that kind of, um, contributed to a perception of him as a big muscle bound guy who's one dimensional and gasses out and gets beat in a spot where he was supposed to get a big win. And then his second loss was also James Thompson, albeit in super fight league three. So I don't know how many people watched that one, but again, it was like, well, that's again, the biggest spot of Bobby Lashley's career. And he kind of lets down. So maybe we see him as like an underachiever. of sorts. Yeah. Well, I think maybe too, the, the Chad Griggs one that came, you're right at a time when it seemed like strike force was really hot on him. And so it was kind of like it created the perception that, he had been given this artificial push, basically, and then was eventually exposed. And so it was kind of like that. That can always be a real detriment for somebody if you start to look like the promoter's golden boy and they just want to do anything to try to get you over. Uh, and then when that collapses, people take a certain kind of glee in that. So I'm sure that hurt his, him long term. But you look around at Bellator and you're like, man, it does seem like with – if he could just add a couple extra things to his game, Bobby Lashley could be the Bellator heavyweight champion, yeah. which you'd think if you're Bellator, like that might be the most fun you've ever had with the heavyweight division. Yeah, absolutely. And now he's won six in a row. Now he's, he's three and oh in Bellator. Uh, and he, they're all stoppages, even if they're, they're not necessarily stoppages that, that come to mind that easily. Do you feel like he from the beginning was poorly maligned at all because he came out of the same professional wrestling immediate professional wrestling background and got into the game at the same time as Brock Lesnar, because like, I don't know, maybe we have that expectation, like similar expectations for the two. And then Brock Lesnar, they both also have amateur wrestling backgrounds. And then Brock Lesnar wins the UFC heavyweight title at the same time when, when, uh, Lashley is like beating Wes Sims and losing to Chad Griggs. I definitely think that played a role in it because people were just kind of like, all right, uh, is he going to be just a, a Brock Lesnar for other organizations? And you remember how he used to say like people would kind of, complain like when he would fight these dudes nobody had ever heard of and was kind of like bringing himself up slowly and you know it was like the being smart about it kind yeah. of let's say to his and that was kind of his, his point was like let me do this the way other fighters do it like why do i have to jump right in and and fight fedor right away uh and it was like that was one of those moments where we as mma fans are kind of like exposed in our Sometimes our thinking where nobody can do anything right, like we're going to criticize the UFC for giving Brock Lesnar a title fight almost right away uh, when he has no real experience in MMA. And then when Bobby Lashley tries to do it the way we ostensibly want somebody to do it, then we complain about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think comparisons with Brock Lesnar uh, in a lot of ways hurt him. Last question this week comes to us from Brandon, who identifies himself as, quote, fighting out of Federal Way, Washington. Nice. Nice. So maybe taking this process too seriously. I don't know. <laughs> can't uh, be. Can't be possible. He writes, guys, Makwan Amir Khani, talk, please and thank you. So now that is an efficient question. Yes, it is. With a, uh, I believe, a Ron Swanson reference there at the end. But uh, 
So yeah, did, did I say that right? Makwan Amirkani? Yes, nailed it. Uh, fighting in the UFC now, uh, 2-0. and oh. he, he beat Andy Ogle in his, in his debut in just eight seconds with a, with a TKO after a flying knee. And, uh, then this past weekend at the, uh, UFC event over in Berlin, uh, he beats Masio Fullen, uh, with a, uh, rear naked choke in just a minute and 41 seconds in what was a little bit more workmanlike of a performance, but still very efficient. Came out, took the guy down, dominated from start to finish, got on his back and, and choked him out. And so at this point, he's 12 and two, two wins in the UFC featherweight division. Nickname is Mr. Finland. I don't think we should forget that. And then gives a heartfelt, tearjerker of a speech about leaving home and, and ignoring texts from his mom so that he could focus on on fighting uh seems like the sky's the limit for him and uh yet another kind of good addition to this featherweight division which is suddenly uh you know right up there i would say in terms of intrigue yeah i mean and that, that was a good performance like you're right that it maybe wasn't as spectacular as running across the cage and kneeing a guy in the head immediately, but it was still really just like did exactly what he wanted to do. Um, and Fullen was, you know, doing some, some good or at least decent work defending against the choke at first. And he just kind of kept with it and got it. I still though, it's one of those things where, okay, on one hand, I, I think if we're going to talk about, hey, where's this guy going? You need to see him against somebody tougher first. Like, right. we don't, you know, right now, beating up a bunch of dudes without Wikipedia pages, it's kind of tough for us to tell uh, what to make of him yet. It's also like, and I will probably end up talking about this a little more in round two when we talk about Champy, Joanna Champion, but it seems like the UFC is kind of in a weird spot with some of these people where it's like, okay, you can see a few diamonds in the rough. Um, now, what do you do with them? Like, you want people to be able to see him. You want to put him in environments where, like, if they perform and have, like, breakout moments, people are actually there watching when they did. Um, and then at the same time, though, like, how do you put somebody on a main card if he's not already at that breakout level, you know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's going to be kind of interesting to see how the UFC handles him and see, uh, you know, how they handle some of these young, what you call diamonds in the rough, because we just got finished talking about Bellator and Bellator. I feel like we have different expectations for Bellator. It's kind of okay with us because Bellator's not the MMA standard bearer. It's kind of okay with us if they put Michael Chandler in a fight where he's going to come out and steamroll some dude in his hometown, right? Like, we see that as shrewd, as I called it before. Like, that's yes. a shrewd decision by Scott Coker. If the UFC does that for one of its guys, we probably rip him. It's bullshit. For putting him in a, in yeah. a, a mismatch, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how the UFC handle these, these kind of young potential stars that it has because Amir Khani's two UFC fights so far have been on the undercard and most recently this one that he just had last weekend on the undercard of a of a fight pass live streaming event so not necessarily in big spots so they need to position those guys like you said in spots where people will see them and uh, and then they after they do that they have a much more difficult task on their hands in terms of public reception because they'll have to put him against somebody that we think is reputable but also like not a tough veteran that's going to like uh stalemate him to a uh unanimous decision loss right? yes yeah good so, point so that's interesting and, and kind of a different thing uh one of the differences i would say between the way it has always been in mixed martial arts promotion as compared to like boxing where you kind of expect the stars you're trying to build to be put up against guys with that we believe that they can beat uh at least in the history of the ufc they they, they have a long-standing uh, tradition of not really doing that and kind of putting the best against the best and letting the cream rise to the top. Uh, you know, as we move into this kind of like new era of the Fox deal and all of that, it'll be interesting to see, um, 
you know, especially with some rating slumping, buy rates down, lots of injuries, uh, kind of a whole new world. It'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, promotional tactics they opt for moving forward. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning. It catches you up on the news and notes in the mixed martial arts world that we don't get a chance to cover when we're not recording the podcast on Mondays through Fridays. Uh, does it in kind of a humorous and funny way. Uh, we get overwhelmingly positive response from that. We think you'll like it if you like the show. So you can go and sign up for free. If you don't like it, you can cancel at any time. Uh, but we feel fair, fairly certain that it'll be a product that you're interested in. You know what I did today? What'd you do? Called the cable company uh-huh. because uh, I needed to set up some new service. And uh, that God, that was awful in terms of like canceling any time. Just yeah. terrible, terrible experience. I've spent the weekend getting peed on. And I felt like the dirtiest thing I did was call the cable company. And you're saying Awful. that that's what we should do? I'm saying that the Breakfast of Champions is far superior of an experience to calling the cable company. Is Al- that a sell? Did I just sell it? Although if – so your sales – It's better than calling the cable company. Your sales of pitch is that we'll make it really easy for you to dump us. Yes. Okay. And it's a more pleasurable experience all the way around. All right. Breakfast of Champions. Although, Better than calling the cable company Breakfast of Champions. We may privately hold a grudge against you. <laughs> yeah. All of the people who have canceled are on a list somewhere in my office. Anyway, that's going to do it for the intro part of the show. We're going to get started with round one. That starts right now. one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. The National Academy of Sports Medicine's trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It just doesn't get any better. NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them about the website offer. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. It's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Ben, I, I don't want to flip the script too dramatically here, but normally... You better not flip that fucking script. Normally we do, are you fucking kidding me, at the end of round number one. I'm going to do my, are you fucking kidding me, at the beginning of round one this week, because I don't see any other way for us to talk our way around this topic. And that is that my, are you fucking kidding me, this week goes out to all of the people who are coming out of the woodwork to suggest, seemingly without any real evidence, that Kimbo Slice's match against Ken Shamrock from Bellator 138 last weekend was fixed. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? First of all, it would be so stupid for Bellator, Brass, Scott Coker, Rich Chow, whoever, and or Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock to enter into a bargain to 
fix and or stage in any way what will certainly be the most highly rated, most watched, most talked about Bellator main event of the year. And secondly, if Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice, for whatever reason, sat down together to fix a fight, and this was the plan that they came up with, are you fucking kidding me? Because <laughs> that kidding was me? a terrible plan from start to finish. There were so many things. I wrote, just wrote a, a column about this today, but there are so many things about the fix theory that just don't add up. Um, because for one thing, like, you usually don't fix a fight so that the favorite wins. Like, Kimbo Slice via first round knockout, I would say it was probably odds on the most likely outcome. You don't fix a fight so that the most likely thing happens. Like, there's just no upside to that. Uh, and like you said, I mean, if the whole plan was like, well, Kimbo can be a huge superstar. Let's bring him back. Let's get him a win over a name people know. Um, and so we'll fix this fight so that he can beat Ken Shamrock and then we can make a bunch of money off promoting him in the future. Um, I mean, A, I don't think you, you need to fix that fight, but if you are going to fix it, you don't do it in a way that makes him look awful, uh, right up until he, that's right. the laughable thing about trying to assert that this fight was fixed is like Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice sat down and said, all right, well, let's fake this. Let's do a fake version of this and we'll, we'll plan it out so that we both just look like suckers. Yes. I will, <laughs> I, I, as Ken Shamrock will begin the fight with one of the worst, most ponderous double leg takedown attempts in the history of the sport and you will just easily shrug me off but that will be the only takedown you easily shrug off moments later i will do an even worse takedown defense or takedown and you will not be able to stop it (laughs) potentially the worst part of this fight will be that kimbo slice cannot stop this terrible takedown and then i will get a, a rear naked choke that it looks like a third grader should finish and you will get out of it. And then yeah. you will punch me really hard in the face. And you that will, was the plan. You will get out of it by not even really defending it all that well. Like Shamrock screwed up that choke. And we were talking about this a little before. I mean, he made some like technical errors in applying the choke. And then like when he first started and then he didn't fix them, he didn't do the, didn't make the right adjustments and Kimbo got out and people were like, how the hell is Ken Shamrock not finish that choke? Well, I mean, for one thing, if you look at his record, the last time he finished somebody in competition with a rear naked choke was like 1994. So it's not like, you know, he's screwing up a heel hook or something that he, he's, that's his bread and butter. Like, it's not that hard for me to believe that 51 year old Ken Shamrock, like in the heat of the moment, just fucked up the choke, uh, and then allowed Kimbo Slice to get out of it. But also, like, there were so many ways that that whole thing could have gone wrong. I mean, I guess you could make the argument, like, it could have been fixed that Shamrock just did it on his own, right? Like, didn't tell Kimbo. But again, you're just like, okay, so his plan is to take him down, take his back, screw up the choke, let him up, and then walk right into a right hand. Like, there are easier ways to lose on purpose, dude. Yeah, the saddest implication of all this could be that at 51 years old, Ken Shamrock is entering into fixed fights where the end result is he gets punched super hard in the face anyway. Yeah. Like, I would really like to believe that this was on the level just for that reason alone. Yeah. That that Ken Shamrock's out there giving it his all and still getting punched in the face. Not that he's going to stand there and let Kimbo Slice punch him in the face well and the things that, that people are pointing to we were talking about this before we we started recording like joe rogan was like okay well look there's this moment like where they clinch up almost immediately and they're mouth to ear for a long time and he kind of citing that as evidence that looks suspect um but the thing is like that happened right away you're telling me that these guys conspired to fix a fight beforehand had days in which they could have discussed it the first thing they did 
immediately was to clinch up to talk about what to do next. Like, that's you don't need to do that. That makes no sense. Maybe they were going with the Ric Flair I'll see out there. <laughs> like, no planning. We'll just go with the flow. We'll feel the crowd. We'll see what they what they want us to do. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about this actual, what we uh, believe to be legitimate fight. The weirdest thing to me, Ben, about this Kimbo Slice, Ken Shamrock fight is, as we you spent the first five minutes of this round saying, they both come out of this looking pretty terrible from uh, like an MMA skills slash fighter perspective. And yet not surprising. And not surprising at all. And yet, and yet perhaps the most surprising thing about this fight is that as this happens, it seems A, entertaining, and B, I was left with the feeling like, God damn, man, Bellator kind of pulled this off they like did. better than you ever probably could have expected. They did. It, it actually worked. Like, and that's the thing, you know, afterwards, especially because it's like we were talking beforehand about how a lot of times for us Bellator these days is not appointment viewing. It's DVR stuff that you're going to look into later. And this one, I mean, I made damn certain I was in my seat in time for the fight to start. And I, my, my boss at MMA Junkie, Dan Stupp, may had a pretty good tweet about it where he was like, that day, you know, you're walking around thinking to yourself, like, I can't fucking believe this. I can't believe this is a main event fight going to be on Spike TV in 2015. Hold on, let me run to the DVR and make sure it's set up to record. Like, and you got on Twitter and everything, and it, it's like the, it kind of captured how MMA fans like like to watch and a type of experience that we like. We like getting together to all kind of like groan and roll our eyes at the same thing together. Like that's kind of fun for us. And Bellator kind of played us in that sense. Like they knew exactly what the kind of thing we would go for is. And also the kind of thing that will bring in the people that don't usually watch like, you know, friends of ours who are not real big MMA fans are were saying like, oh, man, I totally saw this fight. Like as soon as I heard these guys were going to fight, I was like, oh, I got to see that shit. And, and, you know, if you're Bellator, the actual techniques involved in the fight aside, you got to feel like, well, mission fucking accomplished, guys. Yeah, not only did all of the undercard guys that it seemed like they probably wanted to show off as the actual product come out and get huge wins, but then Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice somehow avoid what I was fully expecting to be a torturous, you know, 15-minute slog. That's what I was expecting in this fight. I was expecting we're going three rounds, and by the middle of the second round, everybody on Twitter would be talking about how terrible it was, as if that's not exactly what we expected. Well, I mean, it was it was either that, it seemed to me, or... Kimbo punches Shamrock immediately and he falls down. Right, which is sort of what happened, but at least like the road there seemed kind of interesting. There were some ups and downs in this fight. Now I guess your Bellator uh conventional wisdom says that this fight ended the way that that you would have liked promotionally. You get Kimbo Slice, I guess, has signed a multi-fight deal with Bellator. Uh, it's not like he's a spring chicken. He's 41 years old, uh, made to look spry by his 51-year-old opponent, I suppose. Uh, but what do you do with this guy moving forward? Uh, you know, Bellator's, do you throw him, do you throw him like chum at Bobby Lashley? Do you have him probably lose a rematch to James Thompson? Or, you know, like, I don't know what your other options are. You set him up with one of the seemingly thousands of faceless Russian heavyweights that Bellator has under contract, all of whom would, like, probably chew the guy up and spit him out or do you continue to operate uh under some kind of catchweight scenario where he's going to continue to fight 203 pound geriatrics here's a question what's frank shamrock up to well i just saw in this report about tito ortiz agreeing to fight liam mcgeary for the title that there had been a plan at least on the table to do a frank shamrock tito ortiz rematch so i really do you know what seems like he's down that's one of those where like 
I really don't want to see that rematch for the same reasons I'm mad that they're remaking Point Break. Because I want to remember it the way it exists, like in my mind. That was that first, that, that, that Frank Shamrock T. Ortiz fight, that was one of the first fights I saw where I was like, wait a minute, this is becoming a real sport here. It's no longer just like a karate guy against a wrestling guy. Like, there is something happening here uh, that seems special. And worth paying attention to in the future. Man, for those guys to get out there and do that now, that'd just be too sad, wouldn't it? Better yeah, for Frank be... Shamrock to play up an angle of like, I'm going to avenge my brother. <laughs> and we would all be like, oh, Jesus. And we would also be like, would watch. Yeah. But think about the 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 interview gold that Kimbo Slice could certainly make of that. Like after he beats Frank Shamrock, then he could be like, "How many more Shamrocks you got?" Yeah, right. Like bring, like a, a, bring on all the Shamrocks. It's, it's, Bob Shamrock's still alive. Let's get him. It's like that that Nelson Algren story where the dude beats up some some horse racing jockey who then gets his dad and his brother to come with him, and the guy beats up all three of them, or like knocks down two of them, and then looks at the third one and says, "Where's your mother?" And then punches the guy and drops him. I mean, that would just be good times, man. That would be ratings gold. And for Ken Shamrock, I guess we can only hope this is the last time we ever see him in the cage. He was making a, like Kimbo, I guess, making a comeback for the first time in mixed martial arts since 2010. Uh, I felt, did you read the, the Deadspin? Greg Howard, I believe, wrote a, a feature about Ken Shamrock the week of this leading up where he referred to him as the world's most dangerous can. Oh, I, I saw uh, that, but I did not read really it. Really kind of laid laid to rest the myth of Ken Shamrock. Like the point of the article was kind of like Ken, Ken, Ken Shamrock. It was never really that good. And it's been years since he was any good at all. And, uh, if anything could make me feel guilty in advance of watching this, this Bellator fight, Ken Shamrock and Kimmel slice, that article kind of did like, I kind of felt bad after reading it, that I was going to watch this guy, uh, compete later that night. I, Clearly shook it off. Yeah. I managed to keep <laughs> didn't my let head it get up you and, down, and keep I see. going. But, uh, yeah, man, 51 year old Ken Shamrock. I think the time has probably come for him to not fight any travelers and bare, bare knuckle boxing fights and not return to, uh, to mixed martial arts. How many times have we said that though? I you mean, know, it's, it's not like we, like the jury was still out on whether Ken Shamrock should continue fighting. I mean, obviously he should stop, but that doesn't mean he's going to. If we're not here, Ben, to float pie in the sky, best case scenarios. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing with this show. Yeah. Okay, fine. Tell me what your Are You Fucking Kidding Me is, and then we'll move on to round number two. Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, we mentioned earlier Bellator announcing the one-night four-man light heavyweight tournament. But then when they actually go on air to announce it, did you notice that there were only three guys up there? Oh, yeah. Totally. Phil Davis... Nowhere to be found when we're bringing everybody out. And, like, the only thing that was required of him was to stand there in public view, in view of the cameras, so that we could actually see and verify that he is alive and in good health and presumably willing to do this. That's all he really had to do in that position. And he didn't do it. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I was actually kind of disappointed that he didn't, like, step up onto the stage mid announcement because then that would have made that like the ultimate on the fly MMA style announcement for a dude to just kind of wander out there halfway through. <laughs> That's exactly what I would expect. Uh, so are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, why don't you try this one on Precise? Joanna, and still the champion, goes out there, does the damn thing in Berlin, and just messes Jessica Penne all up. Looks fantastic all the way through, and then comes out there with a Goldberg-esque who's next afterwards. Can we just say right now we finally have ourselves a star in a women's division uh, other than 135, a star that in women's MMA uh, in the UFC that is not Ronda Rousey? It's your girl Champy, my man. Yeah, we kind of we halfway floated that balloon last week in the lead up to this fight, saying that that Joanna uh, and Jacek had like some charisma going that she was seemed like the kind of fighter that we could invest ourselves in, and then obviously she comes out and and pretty much gets exactly the sort of textbook three-round beating of Jessica Penne that you would want to make her seem like a star. Uh, I watched this fight in the maternity ward of the hospital with the sound off, so I don't fully know if I got the full experience, but it was super impressive. She uh, obviously made Jessica Penne look like an extra from The Walking Dead, like in blood all over the the uh, the bottom of her face and and just I thought we were we might get a, a towel thrown in at some point right especially right near the end uh, and talk about sort of a mercy stoppage which we were talking about with the uh, uh, Dan Charles Bobby Lashley fight this was definitely also one where uh, <laughs> there down the stretch in the third round you could tell that the referee was like yeah okay like yeah we 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 can tell how this is gonna go for the rest of the way and Penny was just tough as hell you know she wasn't gonna gonna quit on that because there were several times where she's up against the fence, covering up, getting battered, and you can hear, uh, I believe it was Mark Goddard, uh, telling her, you know, you gotta move, you gotta fight back, you gotta get out of there. And she would do it. She would manage to do just enough to convince him, you know, that she was still in that fight. And there were opportunities there for her to kind of take the easy way out and end it if she wanted to. She was still wanting to fire back, but you could just tell, like, Joanna Yanjacek is on kind of a different level striking wise than a lot of the women in that division right now. She's, she's got incredibly quick hands, has such a, a diversity of strikes that she can hit you with, um, such great movement. And like, if her takedown defense can continue to be solid, it's going to be hard for people to find a, uh, a place where they're better than her. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's obvious that she is the best, most technical striker in, in that weight class. Um, I guess if there's a worry out there, it might be that she's still uh, a little bit one-dimensional. Um, I don't know how how things go if she winds up on the ground. Obviously, she hasn't. Uh, she didn't have to face that against Jessica Penne. I don't really like the thing where somebody comes out and gets a couple wins in the UFC. Admittedly, she's the champion, but then we kind of start treating them like they can't be beat. I feel like that's a you know something that we're kind of. Uh, uh, condition to do in this sport kind of go from zero to a hundred miles an hour real fast saying that they're the greatest that they can't be beat uh yeah jay chick obviously had a close one against claudia gadella uh in december of 2014 in her second ufc fight she won that by split decision now gadella is going to fight uh, jessica aguilar right that's right the, uh, the, the former world series of fighting champion so i think that you know joanna and jay chick has uh, tests that are coming up one way or another. Whoever wins that fight probably is your presumptive number one contender at straw weight. And, and, you know, that, that's a fight that could not turn out to be tough, but so far, uh, she seems like she is a good rallying point for this division. Like she's definitely a worthy champion and 
uh, a charismatic leader who I think people like to watch fight. Well, and then that gets us, though, to the next question, which we talked about beforehand. I wrote about afterwards is what do you do with her now if you're the UFC? Because it's still in a position right where it's not exactly like she can headline a pay-per-view all on her own and uh, be a huge success that way. At the same time, she does feel like she ought to get off of a fight pass. You know, it seems like they want her to be a big deal in Europe. So, hey, let's have her fight there. But then that usually necessarily means uh, that it has to be on fight pass. Um, and, you know, it's good. It's in prime time for the European audiences. They get to see her through multitude of TV deals that the UFC has around Europe. Um, but it seems like it's still weird for you to take a UFC champion and put them on the, the streaming service, right? Like... One of the big deals about being a UFC champion is that you usually get points on the pay-per-view, uh, and that's how you really start to make money is you, you get that that title um, and you get in some pay-per-view bounce and it really the, the money jumps up to a completely whole different level. And it's not really happening for her. I mean, she's got the title right now, but you, it's not like you're making money hand over fist if you're fighting on the online stream in the middle of Saturday afternoon, right? Yeah, and, and some of that, I think, kind of unfortunately for her is the baggage that she might have to carry as the champion of the UFC's newest weight class and the champion of a weight class that, that is still clearly such a work in progress. Because I think you're right. I, I don't think that she could headline a pay-per-view. Um, I don't know that she could headline uh, like a free Fox Network event. Um, it might be a situation where if, you, if you're dead set on getting her on pay-per-view, you have to put her on as as the co-main of a uh, you know, a, a heavier championship fight. Um, I think you could probably get away with putting her on cable somewhere. I think that would work. But again, you know, the UFC's business model seems like it's changing, man. They're going, they're going on this huge international push where it seems like, uh, in a weird way, they're trying to make money the same way Major League Baseball does on on local uh, television rights. And it seems like the U part of the UFC's new plan is to open up all these international markets and try to uh, make money off off television deals in those various countries. And to that end, you know, Joanna Jacek is, 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 uh, it could be a good spot for her to be a, a draw in Europe and a draw, uh, in Eastern Europe and in some of these international, uh, venues where the UFC likes to go. I don't know how that translates to her paycheck. If she's not getting, uh, a cut of, of guaranteed or, or a cut of pay-per-view buys. Uh, so that could be kind of a bummer for her, but I mean, in the same way we look at Demetrius Johnson kind of a flyweight, I think it's kind of like the the unfortunate reality of being the champion at, at the newest weight class. I think that there's some good news for strawweight. Like I seem, I think that, that it has a fairly bright future at this point. You know, you do have people like Claudia Gadella coming up. You've still got Rose Nama Yunus hanging around who the UFC obviously thinks is, is a person that they want to promote. Paige Van Zant is obviously still in the, in the division. You had Tisha Torres come out and get, uh, um, you know, I guess you would say a pretty big win uh, on on television the other night, and you've got uh, you know people like Joanne Calderwood and Juliana Lima who are also in the division. So there's some fighters uh, that at least the UFC feels are, are marketable in that weight class, and uh, whether or not any of them are going to be able to give you a chick a fight, I, I have no idea. But it's not like it's a it's a one woman show, or won't be for very much longer, I don't think. No, and I mean there's so much talent at that division, like established talent, that you, there's a lot of fun matchups you can make there. Um, but, you know, Yen Jacek, you just see her, like we talked about before, like she has this charisma, this charm. Uh, she, she speaks English. And even when she speaks like somewhat broken English, it's still awesome. Uh, you know, she's one of those people where 
you're watching her and you watch her fight, you listen to her talk afterwards and you just think like, well, if you're not on whatever the, the Polish version of Entourage is, uh, you ought to be. I mean, you ought to be a getting to be the Poland's Ronda Rousey over there. Um, so just has a super fun style to watch as well. And that's the only thing is like when I'm watching it, I'm just feeling like I just wish more people were seeing this. What is your take on bringing the props to the weigh-ins? Because she did bring like some uh, some macaroni jewelry. It looked like she bring right. some macaroni a macaroni necklace for Jessica Penne. It's been arts and crafts at time. The weigh-in. My thing would be I can't decide if I like it or not, but I feel like yet yeah, Chick's stare down game is already so strong that she doesn't need to do the props. Like she's better than than Carrot Top or Gallagher. You know, she doesn't have to smash the watermelons or bring the props out there when she's going to do that thing where she stoops down and looks like a little spider ghoul yeah. who's going to climb in through your eyeballs and like suck out your soul. I feel like that's enough. She doesn't need to bring the 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 macrame like the the macaroni jewelry. Well, eventually too you're going to get in a situation where there's just no prop that really makes sense. Like I get the cookie thing with Carlos Barza, the cookie monster. Uh, Jessica Penne kind of makes it easy on you. Now I'm doing the damn mispronunciation thing. Yeah, Jessica so, Penne makes so, it yeah. easy on you uh, with her last name. But eventually you're going to fight somebody and you're just like their last name is Jones and uh, they don't really have a nickname and there's nothing super distinctive about them that you could translate into like a physical object that you could hand them. And then what? Yeah. Then what, Chad? I mean, I guess you bring a can of lima beans, right, when you fight Juliana Lima. Bring, wow. Bring a, a bouquet of roses. Let's see, in the can, the can oh, of lima beans, yeah. that has that works on two levels. That's a double. There's a double meaning there. Yeah. Um, they should book that fight just for that. Were you ever in scouts or anything like that? Did you uh, Did you make some kind of macaroni? When I was a kid, I made my stepdad like a pen cup for his desk that was like uh, covered in macaroni and then spray painted gold. Did you ever do any macaroni art projects? I was vehemently against scouts. Well, they wouldn't take you for obvious reasons. I, there was there was no way I was going to do the the scouts thing. Well, so I guess I still remain somehow like like fired up about it. Like when anybody starts talking about the scouts, I feel angry. I don't know why. I was uh, the alternate to the county Pinewood Derby race. Came in fourth in the city. That's almost as impressive as the time that your wife told me about the newspaper story about you and some other area children who were written up in the local paper for, I believe, just watching Twin Peaks yeah, regularly. Heavy into some nerd shit. Yeah. Fourth place, Pinewood Derby. Alternate to the county meet. The Probably would have won, but this girl who was collecting cars at the end of the tracks threw my car. And hit the, it hit the gym floor and a wheel broke off. We basically had to call in the pit crew to put a new wheel on, and after that, the car was never the same. <laughs> or else, I think we would have got the blue ribbon. I'm wow, you've, sure. be, you've been holding on to this for a while, haven't you? Well, I can tell. I'm, it's basically my Daniel Cormier story, man. <laughs> I've rebuilt myself so many times, you know, after this the crushing defeat of coming in fourth in the city Pinewood Derby race. Had a red, white, and blue car. It was awesome. You're just going to keep talking about it, huh? Glory days, man. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, it's been kind of a rocky road all the way around for uh, UFC Fight Night 70, which at this point emanates from the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, it was originally supposed to be down in Brazil. We had a venue change. We were originally supposed to have the finals of the Ultimate Fighter Brazil Season 4. God, they're still doing that, huh? Apparently. Ultimate Fighter Brazil. Wow. I'll take their word for it. I mean, I haven't, I haven't fact-checked it by actually sitting down and watching it. You were supposed to have uh, Rick Story and Eric Silva. Uh, and, and then we had a, a bunch of visa trouble after they had to move the thing from Brazil to the United States. And so we, we wind up with what is still a, a completely awesome main event in Leota Machida versus Yoel Romero. But a lot of shuffling going on in terms of the uh, fight card for this and a couple of upcoming events to try to uh, make do. Here. And you know what I was thinking when they when I first heard about that that Leota Machida was going to fight your guy, Soldier of Dog, what what UL Romero is man, just Leota Machida does not get too many easy ones, you know. For like, I don't know if it's just that he's in that weird spot of like ex champion where you can't really justify uh, giving him easy fights or anything, or if maybe the powers that be still remember when he was requesting Anderson Silva money. Uh, but man, you'd look at just who he's fought recently, like in the last couple of years. And uh, there are just no easy nights at the office for Leota Machida. Well, it's man. weird. He's in like a doubly weird position because the, the one, you know, the, the couple of times where they've given him a fight where you feel like he really should win, he does win and he wins super fast. Like when he fought CB Dalloway last December, uh, you know, that was one where CB Dalloway had been on a win streak and we were all kind of questioning whether or not CB could become an elite middleweight. And so they put him against Machida and then the answer was nope. Yeah. Like you but even get that knocked one, out in a minute and two seconds by a body kick, my friend. That's the closest one you can point to uh, in the last few years that where you look like, okay, that one looks like a relatively easy fight for Leota Machida. And it was against a guy who was, you know, dragging other people into these – not terribly interesting to watch fights. Like it was still kind of like a tough matchup in a lot of ways, uh, just based on what CB Dalloway was doing to other people. But you you know, he had fought Luke Rockhold in the last one. Then he had that fight with CB Dalloway. Um, before that, he fought Weidman for the title. Uh, Gegard Musasi, the young vagabond. Uh, he got a win there, got that win over Mark Munoz, a friend of his. Um, so that one right. was not again, super pleasant that either. Mark Munoz fight is one where you're like, okay, that's a fight that seems like Leoto Machida should probably win it. But again, it's, that's his debut at middleweight. So we weren't really sure what to expect then he comes out and ends it in, in three minutes and 10 seconds and you're like oh i guess leoto machida seems like he may in fact be an elite middleweight so he does this thing where like he either fights the best and gets himself into a super tough fight or he looks like the best so that that makes it a tough situation for him yeah um and before that fought uh phil davis and then uh before that one that fight with dan henderson that which seemed like the ufc was phrasing it almost uh as if it was punitive uh, for him, uh, I believe turning down that the short notice title fight rematch with John Jones, uh, cause he wanted to make sure that he was really prepared before he got another crack at the title. Um, so yeah, I mean, you just look at the, the, the few years he's had and, uh, I mean, Leona Machida has had to put in some work, man. Uh, and this one seems like just another one of those, man. Like that, that's a, a, a tough, Tough assignment yeah. to go out there against a soldier dog. You're not going to get an easy night at the office against Yoel Romero, I don't think, even though he's coming off that kind of uh, weird ending against Tim Kennedy at UFC 178. Uh, and you know what? Yoel Romero was a guy who has had kind of a strange go of it as well. He was supposed to fight 
Jacare Souza uh, at UFC 184, but then Souza had to pull out with with an injury or, or a sickness, I believe, and and so uh, uh, they they tried to leave that intact and move it to a later date, and then Romero had to drop out because he had he had hurt his knee, um, and so uh, Jacare got a, a cakewalk again against Chris Camozzi. So uh, Jacare or Yoel Romero is a guy who's who seems like. The sky is the limit kind of in his potential, but again, he's 38 years old. And so it's, it's kind of getting down to the nitty gritty for him to try, to try to prove that he can be championship contender and, and at that level. And I guess, uh, Leota Machida is just what the doctor ordered in terms of, uh, a, a litmus test opponent for him. Well, you know, I feel like I was surprised a little bit to see Leota Machida as the favorite in this one, especially because after that, that Luke Rockhold fight, it started to seem like, Maybe Machida, like we're, we're seeing the, the downslope of his career here. Um, which, you know, longevity wise, what we know to expect from fighters would make a little bit of sense. And I was thinking about how that matchup with Romero is going to go. It's one of those where I'm like, all right, was this the one where he faces a big, strong dude who is just going to explode into some crazy violent shit all over him? Um, or is this going to be one of the ones where Leota Machida masters the, the distance and timing and ends up, you know, kicking a, a ground specialist uh, in the body and making short work of him. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I feel like after what we saw in that Luke Rockhold fight, I'm concerned a little bit about Leota Machida. Well, yeah, Leota Machida is 37 years old. And I, I guess my theory or the what I've always thought about Machida is that he's the, he's the kind of guy who has a style that doesn't seem like it's going to age particularly well because so much of what he does is based on elusiveness and movement and, and, uh, you know, being quick, being able to avoid other people's punches and then being such a master of time, timing and technique and targeting that when you come back with a counter punch, uh, that's where you, you know, you score your points, you make your money. Uh, and it seemed like moving down to middleweight kind of prolonged his career, kind of gave him a little bit of added longevity. But at this point, I think you're right to, to wonder like where he goes in terms of into his late thirties as, as that style of fighter. The, the interesting thing to me though, about a, a fight with Yoel Romero is I'm not sure where I would expect the odds to be. I, I guess I, I maybe like you would expect Romero to be the favorite, but at the same time, he's a guy who's only got 10 fights and at times has seemed very raw. Like the thing that yeah. I feel like is most impressive almost about Yoel Romero is that sometimes he's out there and it seems like he has no idea what he's doing. And yet making it up as he goes incredibly dangerous and kind of at times awe inspiring with some of the things that he does. Uh, and, and part of the thing that I think makes him kind of breathtaking is that, uh, he appears to be just kind of spitballing when he's out there. (laughs) Well, you know, I was thinking too, like for him, it's a tough fight because, you know, Machida is always going to be a tough dude, but also it's like one of those where when you start looking at risk versus reward, you know, Luke Rockhold got into a position where, like, you could make a really strong case for him getting the title shot based off beating Machida. If you're the second guy in a row to that party, I don't know if you necessarily get the same pop, especially with middleweight being what it is now. Like, even Romero goes out there, runs over a former champ in Machida, he's probably going to have to win another one to, to get a shot at the, get a, a shot at the belt, right? Yeah, well, you're in a tough position again if you're Yoel Romero because you're already number six on the UFC's official rankings. Uh, Luke Rockhold, we think, is headed to into a title shot against Chris Weidman. And then the other guys who are in front of you are Jacques Array, who you were supposed to fight. Then you got Vitor Belfort. We all know the story there. Uh, you know, you got Machida, who you're going to fight, and then Anderson Silva at number five. So it's not like there are a ton of opportunities to get Yoel Romero a fight against somebody who's, you know, 
more highly rated than he is. It's, it's going to be tough to get him a fight where you feel like he comes out and, and makes uh, any better of a case for himself than he's already been able to make. Uh, and I still feel like he's in that handful of guys that are going to be considered for a title shot if he can win this one and maybe win another one. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as we were, we were talking a couple minutes ago about uh, what kind of matchup we should expect against Machida, like if Machida came out and just totally befuddled Yoel Romero and Yoel Romero just couldn't solve the puzzle, I guess, the way we've been talking about Leota Machida for the extent of his MMA career, would that be surprising? I don't feel like, I feel like that would be one where after it was over, we would be like, oh, of course, of course, a, a, like a relative neophyte like Yoel Romero wouldn't know what to do with a guy who can be as tricky as as Leota Machida. Yeah, no, I feel feel like when you play this one out in your mind, there's a whole bunch of ways I could see it going. It'd be hard for it to, to really be too surprising uh, unless maybe Leota Machida wins a decision via ground and pound. That'd surprise me. Yeah, that, <laughs> if Machida comes out and scores a bunch of takedowns, on uh, on Yoel Romero, I guess that could be considered surprising. This seems like an awesome fight to me, though, frankly. I yeah. haven't had a ton of time to engage with it mentally. I've been uh, distracted, I guess you would say, by uh, uh, my items in my personal life and the new living creature that, that now exists at my house. Just uh, peeing all over everything from what I hear? all over everything, including his father. Uh, but this is, I mean, this is one that's exciting. I know that I'm a kind of a mark for the soldier of dog, but... Uh, like I'm excited for this one, man. I think this has the potential to be a a really good fight on on top of a card where just as you glance at it, I'm not sure what else is there, but uh, but uh, this is one that I would that I'm gonna want to watch. And hey, if he goes out there and he looks good and he wins, maybe your soldierofdog.com website can finally start to move some of those UL Romero mouse pads yeah. uh, that you got stocked kind of, up in the kind inventory. Of to rethink the paywall. Yeah, there. We, were, we we figured everyone would want to pay to see. You know, soldierofdog.net, but uh, been having a tough time there with the paywall, so we might have to re- rethink that one. Your time's going to tell. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll we'll get out of here for this week. What's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, we mentioned earlier the announcement that Bellator had of the uh, the four man one night light heavyweight tournament. They also announced Tito Ortiz challenging for Liam McGeary's Bellator two hundred and five pound title. And Chad, I'm just saying. Did you notice as they were doing that little stand-up spot, McGeary gets on the mic, is like really nice and seems like really excited to be there. And then Tito Ortiz does his usual Tito Ortiz trash talk thing. I'm just saying the look on McGeary's face when Tito Ortiz was doing that totally made it for me because it was, it was a look like, like he had been sent to MMA fantasy camp. And this was one of the highlights of the package was that you'll get to do an interview in which Tito Ortiz will shit talk you. And like the look on his face was like, Oh man, you guys, do you see this? It's really happening. Tito Ortiz is doing this trash talk thing in an interview with me. Oh, this is awesome. I'm just saying that's rad. Like Garth Brooks taking grounders for the Astros during spring training, <laughs> just loving every second of it. He's like, oh, I was, I was wondering if he was going to go this route and do some American versus British thing. Oh, it's great, man. Everything I hoped for. Ben, I'm just saying this week, what did you think of that Ken Shamrock walkout prior to the, uh, to the Kimbo Slice fight where uh, Road Warrior Animal comes out uh-huh. and revs up the crowd? and then, Live uh, singer. There was a live singer whose name I don't know that we ever got. Doesn't matter. Just, and then Ken Shamrock walks down to the cage surrounded by people that I guess we believe to be his entire family. About three generations of his family, it looked like. I'm just saying, if I am the events coordinator, the live event manager of that, I would maybe, in retrospect, I guess, 
have wanted to go up to all the members of Ken Shamrock's family before that walkout and be like, try not to look terrified. <laughs> like, try not to look like we're all doing a funeral march here. Like, don't make a face like you just are hoping that Ken Shamrock doesn't get killed. Do not make that face. Just try to smile. Go somewhere else in your mind. I'm Go just, to a happy place. I'm just saying. Find that, your waterfall. Because that made it weird. Like, I thought we were <laughs> – it, I, I, it was like – it muddied the message. I didn't, I thought we were trying to have like a, maybe a touching moment, like reinforce Ken Shamrock as this family man. And, uh, all of the people just look petrified. It is touching. It's like that touching moment when you put the, the dead king in the ship and you push it out in the water and set it on fire. Like shoot an air, flaming arrow yeah. into it. Well, his, his three wives are forced to die inside there with him. It was like Fido's last trip to the vet. Where everyone <laughs> knows what's coming. You know, Jesus Christ. Just the faces, man. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to talk about the stuff that happens at Ultimate Fight Night 70 and then uh, try to do a show looking ahead to uh, Fourth of July weekend, right? Where hey. there's no MMA show? How about that? Interesting. We'll have to use our mind brains to come up with something good for yeah. that show. Anyway, though, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, one of the things that they they won't be able to say about you, Chad, is that your style doesn't age well. You think that, that I tapped into a style? Since I've already put in some significant aging. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that really helps you out is how, unlike Machida, you rely on pretty much zero energy.